But tonight I want to begin with a poem that will set the stage for Exodus chapter 18. Everybody listen up. Now I imagine few of us would care to lead an exodus. With all their problems, hopes, and fears, a wandering for 40 years. Moses did not want to grip the lonely role of leadership. But God, one brilliant desert dawn, commanded him to take it on. And feeling he could ill afford to disobey his living Lord, he acquiesced to his request and gave the job his very best. No enterprise will long survive whose leader works just nine to five. So Moses, being in his prime, began to work some overtime. His office soon became the site of meetings nearly every night. It wasn't long before he'd scoff at any thought of taking off. With so much work that must be done, he hadn't time for play or fun. Nor could he laugh, relax, or frolic while Moses was a workaholic. Now men with hefty power drives are seldom heroes to their wives. The man who leads a busy life has little time for home or wife. Spouses do not have a yin to join in praising famous men. They give such success a cool reception, and Zipporah, she was no exception. The placid Moses whom she'd married was tired, edgy, tense, and harried. And she suspected he was very ready for a coronary. And so she felt twas time she had a little chat with mom and dad. She journeyed where her parents dwelt and told her folks just how she felt. I didn't want a bed of roses when I agreed to marry Moses. I know it takes a lot of gall to accept a holy call. But Moses, as you clearly see, has time for God and not for me. I cry myself to sleep at night. Tell me, do you think that's right? Well, it caused her parents great distress to see their child's unhappiness. And Jethro, dear Zipporah's dead, was more than just a trifle mad. The time, he thought, is overdue to teach that chap a thing or two. Jethro's temper rankled raw as he sought to find his son-in-law. But then he saw to his dismay how Moses spent the working day People came from far and near in hopes of catching Moses' ear. No problem was too small to mention. They brought them all to his attention. The sheer amount of people who were waiting for an interview caused Jethro then to feel quite dizzy. My son-in-law is much too busy. I think I'll play a bit of Cupid. That man's not mad. He's just stupid. And so I'm happy to relate, Jethro told him to it straight. Whoever said you were commanded to run this country single-handed, you know you're just the protege of God who rests the seventh day. Why, you've become, this is very odd, more dispensable, indispensable than God. This schedule you are keeping will put you to bed in Ulcerville, and that's a price we can't afford, so get some help, thus saith the Lord. So under Jethro's gentle nudges, Moses chose some able judges and discovered to his glee they did the job as well as he. There's ample help for any task once we have the sense to ask.
Well, in chapter 18 of the book of Exodus, Moses' father-in-law Jethro gives him a lesson on priorities in time management and delegation and organization. You remember in the midst of the battle with the Amalekites, Aaron and Hur were an invaluable help to Moses, helping him hold up his hands. And God was teaching Moses through that, that he would never be able to do it all himself. All spiritual leadership can be taxing. Pastors and church leaders have a big job to do. And to be successful, we all have to learn to prioritize and to involve others in the work. Well, chapter 18 begins. And Jethro, the priest of Midian, Moses' father-in-law, heard of all that God had done for Moses and for Israel, his people. Again, the news had gotten around, even to Midian, that the Lord had brought Israel out of Egypt. Then Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, took Zipporah, Moses' wife, after he had sent her back with her two sons, of whom the name of one was Gershom. For he said, I have a stranger... I have been a stranger in a foreign land. And, of course, the word Gershom means stranger. And the name of the other was Eleazar, for he said, The God of my father was my help and delivered me from the sword of Pharaoh. Eleazar means helper or comforter. And Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, came with his sons and his wife to Moses in the wilderness where he was encamped at the mountain of God. And this is the first time that we learn that Zipporah was not with Moses during the time of the Exodus. Apparently, he had sent her back to her family sometime prior to the Exodus from Egypt, the parting of the Red Sea and so forth. Why he did that and exactly when he did that, we don't know. Well, verse 6 tells us. Now he had said to Moses, I, your father-in-law Jethro, am coming to you with your wife and her two sons with her. So Moses went out to meet his father-in-law, bowed down and kissed him. And they asked each other about their well-being and they went into the tent. And Moses told his father-in-law all that the Lord had done to Pharaoh and to the Egyptians for Israel's sake. All the hardship that had come upon them on the way and how the Lord had delivered them. Then Jethro rejoiced for all the good which the Lord had done for Israel, whom he had delivered out of the hand of the Egyptians. And Jethro said, Blessed be the Lord who has delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians and out of the hand of Pharaoh, and who has delivered the people from under the hand of the Egyptians. Now I know that the Lord is greater than all the gods, for in the very thing in which they behaved proudly, he was above them. Now, you remember that each plague that God brought upon the Egyptians was designed to show his superiority over a particular one of their idols. For example, the Nile was considered sacred. So what did God do? He defiled it with blood. Frogs were sacred. They worshipped frogs. So God said, okay, you want frogs? I'll give you frogs. And they had more frogs than they could imagine. I mean, they had so many frogs, they almost croaked. Over and over, each of the plagues was designed to teach the people God's superiority over their gods. They worshiped the sun. So what did God do? He orchestrated an eclipse right in the middle of the day. I mean, the sky went dark. God had showed his superiority. That's why he says, the Lord is greater than all the gods. For in this very thing in which they behaved proudly, the very thing in which they worshiped, 
He was above them. Then Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, took a burnt offering and other sacrifices to offer to God. And Aaron came with all the elders of Israel to eat bread with Moses' father-in-law before God. And so it was on the next day that Moses set to judge the people. And the people stood before Moses from morning until evening. Now Moses was working far too much. He was dealing with problems all day. His caseload was enormous. There wasn't enough for him to go around. And Jethro could see that his son-in-law was headed for a classic case of burnout unless drastic action was taken. Perhaps it was Zipporah who prodded her dad to go and talk to her husband, to call him on the carpet. That's what father-in-laws are for at times. And it's interesting to me, if my experience holds true, it's wives that tend to see the danger signals long before their workaholic husbands see them. And so it could be that Zipporah prodded dad to go and have this talk. But verse 14 tells us, So when Moses' father-in-law saw all that he did for the people, he said, What is this thing that you are doing for the people? Why do you alone sit and all the people stand before you from morning until evening? Moses said to his father-in-law, Because the people come to me to inquire of God. When they have a difficulty, they come to me. And I judge between one and another, and I make known the statutes of God and his laws. Now Moses meant well. His intentions were good. Like any good pastor, he had two things. He had a passion for God's word, and so he taught them God's statutes. But he also had a compassion for God's people. That's why he was willing to judge between them, to to promote harmony and to help them get along. He had a passion for God's word. He had a compassion for God's people. But working longer is not always the answer. Here's what you should understand about ministry. Ministry will fill up whatever time it is allotted. Give it 50 hours and it'll fill up 50 hours. Give it 80 hours and you'll find 80 hours worth of things to do. A pastor's work is never done. As long as there's one more lost person out there, you've got a reason to get up and keep going. That's why I'm saying you get to the point where the answer is not just to work longer, it's to work smarter. Verse 17 tells us, So Moses' father-in-law said to him, The thing that you do is not good. Both you and these people who you are with will surely wear yourselves out. For this thing is too much for you. You are not able to perform it by yourself. You see, here's what I need to remember. Here's what every pastor, every church leader, every church minister needs to remember. Moses represented God, but he was not God. Psalm 121 verse 4 tells us that God neither slumbers nor sleeps. I hate to admit it, but pastors require six to seven hours each night. God is in all places at all times. I try to do that and I'll get a ticket. (laughs) I'm limited to how fast the speed limit allows me to drive. A pastor who tries to do it all himself will surely wear himself out. Jethro continues in verse 19. Listen now to my voice. 
I will give you counsel and God will be with you. Stand before God for the people so that you may bring the difficulties to God. And you shall teach them the statutes and the laws and show them the way in which they must walk and the work they must do. Moreover, you shall select from all the people able men, such as fear God, men of truth, hating covetousness, and place such over them to be rulers of thousands and rulers of hundreds and rulers of fifties and rulers of tens, and let them judge the people at all times. Here was Moses' choice. Frustration or delegation. That was his choice. Then it will be that every great matter that they shall bring to you, but every small matter they, shall, they themselves shall judge. So it will be easier for you, for they will bear the burden with you. If you do this thing, and God so commands you, that's a nice way to put it. You know, if you take my advice, and of course this is God's command to you, you know. Ever had anybody say that to you? Then you will be able to endure And all this people will also go to their place in peace. Moses, a little delegation is going to save you, man. It's going to save you. It's going to bless the people. And this is the strategy that we've adopted here at Calvary Chapel. We have assistant pastors and we have elders and we have deacons that handle the small matters. And if they have a problem that they can't figure out, then they bring it to me. And if I can't figure it out, then I take it to my wife. Just kidding. But rather than answer the phone and be in charge of arranging the chairs, this allows me to focus on the three priorities that Jethro gave to Moses. Verse 19, pray for the people. Verse 20, teach the people my statutes, my ways. And then in verses 21 and 22, oversee the bigger issues that might arise among the people. Moses' job, my job, is threefold. To plead to God for the people, to feed God's word to the people, and to lead the people in God's ways. To plead, to feed, and to lead. And when I get much beyond that, I get myself in trouble. Verse 24 tells us how, God, how Moses responded to his father-in-law's advice, how every son-in-law should respond to his father-in-law's advice. Because one day I'll probably be a father-in-law. So Moses heeded the voice of his father-in-law and did all that he had said. And Moses chose able men out of all Israel and made them heads over the people, rulers of thousands, rulers of hundreds, rulers of fifties, and rulers of tens. So they judged the people at all times, the hard cases they brought to Moses, but they judged every small case themselves. Hey, the deliverer became a delegator. And it blessed him and blessed the people. Then Moses let his father-in-law depart, and he went his way to his own land. Chapter 19. In the third month, after the children of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on the same day they came to the wilderness of Sinai, for they had departed from Rephidim, had come to the wilderness of Sinai, and camped in the wilderness. So Israel camped there before the mountain. Now, the traditional Mount Sinai, or Jabel Musa, is a rectangular piece of granite that soars 7,500 feet above sea level. It's located deep in the Sinai Peninsula. But there are at least a dozen other sites that have been suggested for Mount Sinai. One of the most intriguing 
is the theory of a mountain called Jabel El Laws, or the Mountain of the Law. And it's located east of the Gulf of Aqaba in Saudi Arabia. As a matter of fact, the top of Jabel El Laws appears charred by fire, which, of course, we're going to find out. The fire came down and God's fire burned the top of this mountain. There's also a cave near the top of this mountain that fits the biblical descriptions. Later, Elijah will run down to Mount Sinai and hide in a cave. And there are also some signs of calf worship at the base of this mountain. It's a very interesting theory. We're really not sure, though, as to the identity of Mount Sinai. Verse 3, And Moses went up to God, and the Lord called to him from the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the children of Israel, You have seen what I did to the Egyptians. And God uses some beautiful imagery here to describe how he has treated the new nation Israel. He says, And how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. A mother eagle will toss her little eaglets out of the nest. And of course they'll try to flap their wings and try to get the blood out into their wings and they'll fall to the ground and just as they're about to hit the ground the mother will swoop down under them and rescue her chicks and she does this over and over just tossing them out of the nest and rescuing them before they hit the ground until the little bird learns how to flap its wings and fly itself and likewise God has pushed Israel now out of the nest this is what the wilderness experience has been about up till now Now the Hebrews are being forced to deal with polluted water and with no water and with their hunger pains and with attacks from the enemy. They're learning how to fly. Each time God has swooped down, he's rescued his people. But he wants them to learn how to flap their wings and fly in faith and really learn to walk with him. Verse 5 tells us, Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be a special treasure to me above all people. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words which you shall speak to the children of Israel. Now, up until now, God's blessing on Israel has been based on his covenant to Abraham. You remember the Abrahamic covenant, very important covenant, and it will still be enforced But now another covenant gets initiated. The Mosaic Covenant establishes certain laws that Israel is now to obey. And God's blessing upon them will be dependent on their obedience to those laws. Today we refer to God's agreement with Israel through Moses as the Old Covenant. For it has now become obsolete by a newer covenant. The new covenant that was paid for and ratified on the cross of Jesus Christ. You see, it's now faith in Jesus that keeps us in favor with God, that keeps us right with God, not the laws given to Moses. But for 1,500 years prior to Christ, the Mosaic Covenant was what the people obeyed. Their obedience to the covenant was what brought the blessing of God upon them. The Mosaic Covenant benefited the Hebrews, and it created for them some Spiritual sensibilities, it developed them spiritually. And we too can learn a lot by understanding the law's requirements. So Moses came and called for the elders of the people and laid before them all these words which the Lord commanded him. 
Then all the people answered together and said, All that the Lord has spoken we will do. So Moses brought back the words of the Lord of the people to the Lord. They agreed to live by God's laws. Verse 9. And the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I come to you in the thick cloud, that the people may hear when I speak with you and believe you forever. So Moses told the words of the people to the Lord. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go to the people and consecrate them or dedicate them today and tomorrow and let them wash their clothes and let them be ready for the third day. For on the third day the Lord will come down upon Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. The glory of the Lord is going to appear to them in a physical, visible form. The glory is going to hover over the mountain peak All the people are going to see it. And by this visible manifestation of God's presence, the people are going to recognize that God has come and God is speaking to Moses. Verse 12. Now you shall set bounds for the people all around, saying, Take heed to yourselves that you do not go up to the mountain or touch its base. In other words, God tells Moses to rope off the mountain. You know, like Augusta National, where they rope off the fairways and around the greens and you can't get into the sacred area. They're supposed to rope off the mountain where you can't get up and touch the mountain. None of these these Hebrews are allowed on the slopes. And here's why. For whoever touches the mountain shall surely be put to death. Understand, God is so holy that for a sinful human being, apart from God's grace... To touch God, he would die instantly. He could never touch God's presence and live apart from God's grace. The only person that will be allowed on this mountain will be Moses. Death is the penalty for walking onto the mountain. And here's how the penalty is to be executed, verse 13. Not a hand shall touch him, but he shall surely be stoned or shot with an arrow. Whether man or beast, he shall not live. Don't get near that mountain. When the trumpet sounds long, they shall come near the mountain. Now, God invited the Hebrews near the mountain, but they were to watch their step. They were not allowed on the mountain. They were required to keep a distance. And so Moses went down from the mountain to the people and sanctified the people, and they washed their clothes. And he said to the people, Be ready for the third day. Do not come near your wives. Then it shall come to pass on the third day in the morning... That there were thunderings and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain. And the sound of the trumpet was very loud so that all the people who were in the camp trembled. Now God loved these people. And he made them this grace-filled promise back in verses 5 and 6. That they would be a special treasure to him above all other people. That they would be a kingdom of priests. They would be special to God. What a grace-filled promise. But notice their initial reaction here to God's glory. It's fear. Notice they trembled before this mountain. Verse 17 tells us, And Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet with God, and they stood at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was completely in smoke because the Lord descended upon it in fire. Its smoke ascended like the smoke of a furnace, and the whole mountain quaked greatly. 
And when the blast of the trumpet sounded long and became louder and louder. Now it's early in the morning. The sun is getting hot in the sky. God overshadows this mountain with this thick cloud of his glory. And then he sets the summit of the mountain on fire. It looks like an erupting volcano. Underneath this cloud, it's like a solar eclipse. All you can see is the fire burning on top of the mountain. And suddenly this huge chunk of granite starts to rumble and shake under your feet. And then a blast from a trumpet grows louder and louder. And that's when Moses spoke and God answered him by voice. Now imagine on top of all of that, suddenly you hear the Almighty speak in an audible tone. They heard his voice. How would the voice of God sound? Ever thought about that? On that day, there was no need to quiet your spirit to hear the voice of God. There was no need to listen to the ear, with the ears of your heart. There was no subtle communication at Mount Sinai. Spiritual sensitivity was not required. God is about to sound out His law for every ear to hear in a loud and in an audible tone. Verse 20. Then the Lord came down from Mount Sinai on the top of the mountain. And the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain. And Moses went up. And the Lord said to Moses, Go down and warn the people, lest they break through to gaze at the Lord, and many of them perish. Also, let the priests who come near the Lord consecrate themselves, lest the Lord break out against them. But Moses said to the Lord, The people cannot come up to Mount Sinai, for you warned us, saying, Set bounds around the mountain and consecrate it. And Moses, I think, is underestimating the people's stupidity. God knows that give them half a chance and they will try to break through and they'll disobey his, his uh, limitations and boundaries. You know, we all need boundaries, don't we? And yet, isn't it the human tendency to want to violate God's boundaries? To want to break through, to want to go it our own way and do our own thing? God knew that someone might try to climb the fence and break through to see God up close and personal. And so he tells Moses to take these warnings seriously. Then the Lord said to him, Away, get down, and then come up, you and Aaron with you. But do not let the priests and the people break through to come up to the Lord, lest he break out against them. God is saying, Don't downplay my warning. And so Moses went down to the people, and he spoke to them. Now the question arises, If God loved these people, and he truly did, why was he so concerned about them breaching his space and approaching and encroaching upon his holiness? To understand the answer to that question, remember that there is a difference between acceptance and love. God's love is unconditional. God loves you regardless of what you do. But remember, his acceptance is highly conditional. Just because He loves you doesn't mean He accepts you. God has terms that you have to satisfy before you can be accepted. The Hebrews knew that God loved them, but they had not gained His acceptance, not yet. Not until their sin is atoned for can they enter and enjoy God's presence. We need to remember that. 
Just because God loves people doesn't mean that he accepts them. God loves everybody, but he doesn't accept everybody. Not until they've given their life to Jesus. Not until they've accepted God's terms for acceptance. In Hebrews chapter 12, the New Testament writer contrasts Israel's experience at Mount Sinai with our experience in Christ Jesus. For you see, we too have come to a mountain. Not a physical mountain, not a Mount Sinai. But according to Hebrews, we've come to Mount Zion, to God's heavenly mountain. Christ has made a way for us to come to the very throne room of God. And it's interesting the contrast. At Sinai, Israel trembled in fear. But when we come to Mount Zion, to the heavenly mountain, we receive God's comfort and God's grace. At Sinai, Israel's access to God was restricted. Our access to God is unlimited. Through Christ Jesus, we can come boldly to the throne of grace at any time, whenever there's a time when we need help. At Sinai, they approached in fear. Today, we approach God through Jesus Christ with confidence. At Sinai, they were burdened by the guilt of their sin. We come to God trusting in the forgiveness that's been won by Christ. At Sinai, they were under the scrutiny of the law. In Christ Jesus, we've been registered in heaven. We've been made acceptable in Christ. At Sinai, their mediator was a man, Moses. Our mediator is a living Lord, Jesus Christ. You see, some folks believe that the key to the Christian life the key for Christians to become more obedient and to walk closer to God is more of Mount Sinai, more rules, more fear, more intimidation, more law and awe. But that didn't work at Mount Sinai. For we're going to discover in a few chapters, in just a couple of days, that the same Israel that trembled before the glory of the Lord will later worship a golden calf. They'll fall into idolatry. You see, to really change, it takes more than law and works and efforts. To really change, it takes the grace that comes from Mount Zion. The grace that flows from the throne of God. The work of Jesus Christ in our lives. We don't need more of Mount Mount Sinai. We need more of Jesus. But chapter 20 tells us, And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. God uses a mountain as a pulpit and he speaks audibly to the people. And in these next verses, he lays down his law and he begins with ten commandments. God's top ten list right here before us. We learn later that these commandments will be written by God on two stone tablets. And apparently the first four commandments were written on one tablet while the next six commandments were written on a second tablet. It's interesting the first four commandments deal with the vertical relationship, with man's relationship with God. Whereas the last six commandments deal with the horizontal relationship, man's relationships with his fellow man. One day Moses came to the people and he said, the people are sick. What do you prescribe? And God said, take these two tablets. There are folks who believe that God wrote the Ten Commandments on the heart of the first man, Adam. 
They, they constitute what we call conscience. But when Adam sinned, his conscience was de defiled and wrecked. And the eternal standard was defaced. And so, God comes at Mount Sinai now to restate his moral code, this time to literally put it in stone. Once a little boy was asked to name the Ten Commandments. And he said he could only remember two. Pick up your toys and don't drink and drive. Reminds me of the Sunday school teacher who asked her class, which of the Ten Commandments would you be breaking if you pulled your dog's tail? And one little girl answered, what God has joined together, let no man put asunder. <laughs> I hope you do a better job at remembering the Ten Commandments. God has given His people back then and today ten non-negotiables by which we should live our lives. And though we are no longer under the law, though we are no longer being judged by our performance to the law, though we're no longer gaining an increased acceptance with God by our obedience to the law, nevertheless, if we ignore the wisdom in these first ten commandments, we do so at our own peril. These commandments teach us how to live. These commandments show us what's important in life. What, what need to be non-negotiables in our lives. Recently I saw a television commercial where a boy says to his girlfriend, I'm not impressed with you anymore. You don't have any values. And that's when the girl snapped back and she says, Oh, yes, I do. I bought this shirt for $5.95. We've lost sight of what even constitutes values. I thought it was funny, too, when I saw it. <laughs> Here's what concerns me about people today. Where are our convictions? Where are our standards? Where are the non-negotiables on which we're going to stand and not back down? Morality, guys, is not a guessing game. Right and wrong do exist. God's truth is absolute. A customized morality that serves our selfishness is not part of God's plan. God wants there to be things that we can count on as true. God wants there to be solid ground on which we can stand. And we find it right here with these Ten Commandments. Well, verse 3 begins then. You shall have no other gods before me. Now, in Western nations today, most people are too sophisticated to have little golden statues on their mantle or Buddhas sitting over in the corner of their living room or whatever. And yet that doesn't mean that we're immune to idols. You know that. You can make a god out of anything. You can make an idol out of gold or an idol out of sports or an idol out of entertainment or an idol out of another person. You can have your idol sitting in your driveway. You can wash and wax it each week. Anything that rivals our love for God becomes an idol. D.L. Moody once said, You do not have to go to heathen lands today to find false gods. America is full of them. Whatever you love more than God is your idol. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath. Or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them nor serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. 
visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing mercy to thousands, to those who love me and keep my commandments. Now, the first commandment tells us who to worship, whereas the second commandment tells us how to worship, how God wants to be worshipped. And I hope you know, you don't really love someone unless you love them in the way they want to be loved. You understand that by now, don't you? If you're married, hopefully you do. If not, you're having problems. I mean, I can, I can come in and say to Kathy, Kathy, I'm going to give you a season ticket to the Atlanta Braves game, honey. I'm going to give you two where you and I can go together. That's not going to be near as much to her as I'm going to take that money and, and, and give you a gift certificate where you can go down and do some shopping and buy yourself some new clothes. That says love to her, not Braves tickets. You don't really love someone unless you love them in the way they want to be loved. And this is true with God. You don't, don't say you worship God unless you worship Him in the way He wants to be worshipped. Now, God is invisible. God is intangible. God is spirit. And thus, He says we should avoid introducing any physical representations of God into our worship. Icons or trinkets or crucifixes. Over time, the symbol overshadows the substance. The Puritans of old. Even the Orthodox Jews today interpret the second commandment as a prohibition against art in general. Any image was prohibited. Of course, if this is so, God broke his own commandment. For later, he'll commission men to embroider cherubim in the curtains that hung in the tabernacle. He'll also place two golden cherubim on top of the ark. It took skill to make those works of art. God was never against artistry. The second commandment, though, is aimed at idolatry making any physical representation that's going to be employed into our worship, this is a dangerous thing. This is a way that God does not want to be worshipped in a way that will eventually lead to idolatry. Verse 7, You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Commandment number 3 instructs us not to trivialize or to disgrace God's name. If you put it in the positive, take God seriously. Always treat His name and His nature with reverence. I hope you're a reverent person. That's almost a thing of the past these days, reverence. I think the third commandment teaches us to be reverent. Verse 8, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you shall do no work, you nor your son, nor your daughter, nor your male servant, nor your female servant, nor your cattle, nor your stranger who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea, and all that is in them, and rested the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it. The fourth commandment instructs us to stop and relax and learn to rest in God. God knew the rigors of work. He knew the demands that would come upon us. And He knew that those rigors and those demands would consume so much of our time. So He commanded us to set aside one day in seven to retreat from our work. And to spend time with Him. 
to pray and to play and to remind ourselves what life is all about. God wants each of us in a weekly rhythm. It's a healthy rhythm. It causes life to go smoother. For six days we make a living, but then on the seventh day we rediscover what life is really all about. We rest and we spend time with God and we refresh each other with our fellowship. If you violate this commandment, you're heading for a coronary. You're heading for some problems. We're not, we were not made to endure the stress of work seven days straight. We need one day in seven to unwind and to rest. The bow that's always bent ceases to shoot straight. You need to relax the string from time to time. When we get to the New Testament, we learn that resting one day in seven doesn't make us any more right with God than we are in Christ. But it does keep us in our right mind, so don't forget it. Verse 12, honor your father and your mother that your days may be long upon the land which the Lord your God is giving you. Did all you kids in the back section over there, did you hear that? I hope you did. Hey, generally speaking, parents are smarter than kids. Did I hear an amen? Parents have been around the block a time or two. Parents know stuff kids don't know. So listen to your mom and dad. It'll minimize life's dangers. It'll maximize life's enjoyments. Why learn everything the hard way? A person will live longer and live better if they listen to their parents. The sixth commandment tells us, you shall not murder. God alone gives life. So only God has the authority to end life. Now at times, God justifies the use of the sword in a just war. In other places, he sanctions self-defense. Government has the God-given responsibility to execute capital punishment. But life is sacred. It's a gift from God. Man was made in God's likeness. So to harm an innocent person is to, in essence, mar the image of God. Jesus would say that if a person gets angry and lashes out at another person with a gun or with a knife or even with words or spite... He's committed murder, if not literally, he's committed it in his heart. Perhaps he's assassinated a reputation. Again, that's murder in the heart. And the question really becomes, how can I adore God and abhor the person who bears his image? How can we do that? How can I love Jesus and yet despise the person he came to save? The sixth commandment teaches us to respect human life. As I like to, pay, to say, to be fully pro-life. Verse 14, you shall not commit adultery. Life is sacred and the institution that propagates life is also sacred. God places a high hedge around the institution of marriage. Sex outside marriage. Whether that's sex before you get married or sex after you've gotten married is a violation of the seventh commandment. God tells us to guard marriage at all costs. Even if you're single, you need to guard your marriage. You need to be faithful to your future spouse. And just as it's possible to commit murder in your heart, in the same way we can commit adultery in our heart. 
Jesus said it in Matthew chapter 5. He said, But you have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that whoever looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Now obviously the seed of the sin is not as far-reaching and as destructive as the deed. But in a spiritual sense, the seed is just as loaded with evil as the deed. Always remember... Adultery begins in the head long before it ends in the bed. We all should be faithful to our spouse. If we're married to our present spouse, if we're single to our future spouse, put a high hedge in your life around marriage. Verse 15, you shall not steal. And to steal is to take something that belongs to another person without their permission. It includes burglary and shoplifting and employee theft and music and software piracy. Yeah, it does. And deceptive advertising and not returning stuff that you borrowed. And the most insidious form of theft, stealing from God, which we do when we don't give Him our tithe, according to Malachi. The world says, what is mine is mine, I'll keep it. The thief says, what's yours is mine, I'll take it. But the Christian says, what, mine, what is mine is God's, and I'll share it. Notice the progression in these Ten Commandments. The sixth affirms the sanctity of life. The seventh upholds the sanctity of marriage, the institution that propagates life. Now the eighth protects the sanctity of private property, the stuff used to sustain life. In its rawest form, to steal another person's property is to prohibit them from meeting their needs and to kill them by a slow death. God wants us to be givers, not takers. Verse 16, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. Now the ninth commandment instructs us to be truth-tellers. To be men and women of our word. I hope this is a non-negotiable in your life. That you're going to be a person of your word. You see, every society is held together by honest communication. If I can't trust what you say, then it's impossible for us to have a meaningful relationship. Business breaks down. Marriage becomes mute. The courts become dysfunctional. And notice again the progression. Murder robs us of life itself. Adultery destroys the institution that propagates life and protects it. Theft takes away resources that are used to sustain life. And slander robs us of the reward of a great life because it destroys a good reputation. And the 10th commandment, verse 17. You shall not covet your neighbor's house, even if it's brand new in a subdivision with swim and tennis. And it has a full basement and a three-car garage and stainless steel appliances. Don't covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife, even if she comes and gets the mail in her negligee and sunbathes in the driveway wearing a bikini. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife. You shall not covet your neighbor's male servant. The guy your neighbor hires to spray, spray the weeds and mow his grass. Boy, I wish he'd come over and do that for me. You shall not covet your neighbor's female servant, the girl from Maid Brigade who comes once a week to clean her house for her. 
boy. You shall not covet your neighbor's ox or his new John Deere riding mower with that cup holder right on in the side there. I've seen that thing. And you shall not covet your neighbor's donkey, even if it's a sport utility donkey with padded leather saddle and TV mounted right up above the ears and all. Hey, this commandment more than any other reveals the sinful core in every human heart. It's never enough, is it? What we got is never enough, is it? Oh, we're fine. We're just fine until our neighbor gets one. (laughs) Whatever that one happens to be. And then suddenly, we've got to have that same. Oh, I can't live without that. We can't be one-upped, can we? In Romans 7, verse 7, Paul said that it was this commandment that convinced him of his own sinfulness. He realized how selfish he truly was. God wants us to be contented. Contented with him. Contented with his blessings. Contented with the things that he's provided for us. And he wants contentment to characterize our lives. Don't let a constant selfishness and craving for more characterize your life. Well, verse 18 says, Now all the people witnessed the thunderings, the lightning flashes, the sound of the trumpet, and the mountain smoking. Next time I teach on this, I'm going to bring the special effects with me. And when the people saw it, they trembled and they stood afar off. Then they said to Moses, You speak with us and we will hear, but let not God speak with us lest we die. I mean, Israel was so intimidated by God's glory and greatness and goodness that they preferred to deal with Moses, not with God. They were comfortable with flesh and blood. But the presence and the voice of the Almighty overwhelmed them. They were wiped out by His glory and His majesty. And Moses said to the people, Do not fear, for God has come to test you. And that his fear may be before you so that you may not sin. So the people stood afar off, but Moses drew near the thick darkness where God was. Verse 22. Then the Lord said to Moses, Thus you shall say to the children of Israel, You have seen that I have talked with you from heaven. You shall not make anything to be with me, gods of silver or gods of gold. You shall not make for yourself. An altar of earth you shall make for me, and you shall sacrifice on it your burnt offerings and your peace offerings, your sheep and your oxen. In every place where I record my name, I will come to you, and I will bless you. And if you make me an altar of stone, you shall not build it of hewn stone, or of carved and chiseled and finished stone. It had to be raw, natural stone. He says, for if you use your tool on it, you have profaned it. In other words, when you build an altar, don't make it flashy. Don't use it as an excuse to showcase your talents and your skills and your craftsmanship. You know, this is good advice for worship leaders. Worship is not a time to show off musically or to play you know, in an extravagant kind of a way that attracts attention to yourself. Yes, worship leaders need to play skillfully, but a worship leader never tries to steal the glory from the one who's being worshipped. 
You know, we need to bring to God an earthy altar, not a ornate, flashy kind of a thing. Make sure that God's get, God gets the glory, not the worship leader. Verse 26, Nor shall you go up by steps to my altar, that your nakedness may not be exposed on it. The priests would wear these flowing robes, so if they walked up a flight of stairs, you know, if the altar was raised on the platform, if there were steps leading up to the altar, and they were wearing these long flowing robes, then the people that were sitting down underneath them, you know, they might see underneath their robe. That would not be good. And you know, that's why we have a rule on the worship team. Nobody ever wears short pants on the worship team. You always wear long pants, no short pants. If I can't wear short pants, you can't wear short pants. And I can't wear short pants because if the sisters saw my legs, some of them might stumble. So I just say, no short pants. I couldn't even say that with a straight face. <laughs> a ground-level altar. That's what was needed. That would protect the priest's modesty and the people's perception. But again, notice the instructions for the altar fit God's plan for salvation. For there are no steps to God. There are no steps to God. Jesus is our altar. And He meets us right where we're at, just as we are. And he doesn't come plated with gold. Jesus wore no heavenly royal robes while on earth. Jesus was an earthy altar, wasn't he? He was born of humble human means. And just as the Messiah was depicted in the Old Testament, Jesus was a stone, but not a stone cut out with human hands, not a stone of human effort. According to Daniel, he was a stone cut out without hands. In other words, nothing about our salvation has anything to do with us. It all has to do with God and God's grace. And notice the set of instructions. Notice the first set of instructions that are given to the Hebrews after the Ten Commandments deal with the construction of an altar. This is so important. It's as if God knows that they'll never be able to keep these Ten Commandments, especially the spirit of the commandment. And so what does God do? He says, I know you're going to break these commandments, so the very first thing I'm going to do is to talk to you about an altar because you're going to have to make some sacrifice, and you're going to have to ask for forgiveness. You see, God didn't give us these commandments thinking they would make us good. Just the opposite. He gave us the Ten Commandments knowing that they would expose our sin and show us our need for a Savior. The Ten Commandments can only be lived out by a person who's been to the altar and has received God's power and is walking in the power of the Holy Spirit. The Ten Commandments teach us how to love God, the first table of the law, and teach us how to love each other, the second table of the law. But it's only after we've come to Jesus that God puts that love in our hearts and enables us to live out these commandments. And so, always remember, the first thing God instructed them on after he gave them the commandments was how they would fix things once they broke them. He talked to them about an altar. And we have an altar where all our sins have been forgiven, where the blood of Jesus has washed us clean and made us whole. I trust you'll live at that altar this week and you'll walk in Christ and walk in faith.
And there we have Exodus chapter 20.